Addressing the difficulties of defining folk song, Steve Roud has written, It is not the origin of a song which makes it a folk song, but the process by which ordinary people learn it, perform it, and pass it on. It is therefore not really the song which is folk, but the process of learning and performance. To celebrate Burns Night 2023, today I'm going to talk about one of Robert Burns's earliest songs, first reading it through line by line, and then, in the spirit of the folk tradition, looking at how the piece has changed over the years between its first composition and today. First, at how Burns himself made changes to his song to reflect his unstable romantic life, and then how editors and folk singers that followed him changed it after his death. By doing so, this podcast will tell the story of how a teenage love lyric from 1775 eventually wound up being sung at the royal opening of the Scottish Parliament, here in Edinburgh, two and a half centuries later. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about Now Westlin Wins by Robert Burns. As this is a literature podcast, perhaps I should properly give the song the name that accompanies it in print, which would be Song Composed in August, but it's not half as dashing as Now Westlin Wins. And as mentioned, I want today to focus on Burns and the folk tradition. And Now Westlin Wins is the name by which modern folk singers like Dick Gochen refer to the lyric. On the last two Burns nights, I've talked about Tam and Address to the Deal, both of which afforded a good look at one aspect of the folk tradition in the work of Burns, his recollections of and riffs on the sort of folk stories and local legends that he heard growing up from people like Betty Davidson, an Ayrshire relative of his mother's. Davidson was said by Burns to have the largest collection in the county of tales of superstitious trumpery. But what we haven't talked about before here is Burns and song, song as distinct from his poems, the lyrics that he wrote to be accompanied by a tune, something he did all his life despite his own apparent inability to sing. Unlike her son, Robert's mother Agnes was a talented singer who entertained her children with a repertoire of folk songs. According to Catherine Carswell, one of Burns's biographers, Agnes was a good song carrier, her voice sweet and strong, her memory excellent. The kind of folk songs that Agnes sung were passed, like Betty Davidson's stories, from town to town, picking up little local flourishes here and there, having the obscene parts pruned out or replanted depending on the audience. The more topical or reactionary a song was, the less likely it was to sustain its popularity, and gradually these would sink down the folk singer's repertoire and eventually disappear. The songs that lasted tended to have broader, more accommodating themes. Nature and the changing seasons, hard work, love and loss. Gavin Grieg, one of Burns's descendants and a song collector himself, has written that the true living minstrelsy of the Scottish people was traditional and not to be found in books and collections of so-called Scottish song. Instead, songs were carried around in the excellent memory of people like Agnes Burns. When Burns first came to publish his own poems and songs in the Kilmarnock edition of 1786, Now Westlin Winds was found towards the back, under the title Song Composed in August. Beneath this, in smaller writing, is the tune it's supposed to be sung to, I had a horse, I had ni mare. In this format, Burns was following the example of song collections he had loved, like Alan Ramsey's Tea Table Miscellany, a collection of chiefly Scottish songs, often naming the appropriate tune underneath the song title. 
The preface to the 10th edition of this miscellany acknowledges that our Scots tunes have not lengthened variety of music, yet they have an agreeable gaiety and natural sweetness. They are, for the most part, so cheerful that upon hearing them played or sung, we find a difficulty to keep ourselves from dancing. This touches on the thorny issue of the supposed naturalness of songs, an idea that would be used to both complement and patronise our ploughman poet. Thomas Carlyle wrote of Burns's songs that they were his most finished, complete and truly inspired pieces. The reason may be that song is a brief, simple species of composition and requires nothing so much for its perfection as genuine poetic feeling, genuine music of the heart. Burns himself said that I have no great faith in the boastful pretensions to intuitive propriety and unlaboured elegance. The rough material of fine writing is certainly the gift of genius, but I as firmly believe that the workmanship is the united efforts of pain, attention and repeated trial. As we will see, the inherent changeability of folk song allowed Burns as much repeated trial as he liked. Their flexible associations and typically obscure origins also served editors and compilers of folk songs, who, if they were unable to find a folk song on a desirable theme, could just as easily make one up, and then credit it to an unknown centuries-dead yokel. In later years, this would become a problem for Burns scholarship too, as some folk song collectors or discoverers would rather overzealously attribute anonymous songs to Rabbi. According to Catherine Carswell, most of the verses the tea table miscellany contained had been falsified by the genteel editor and the other ingenious gentlemen, his assistants. But many of them were still recognisable country songs. Some were substantially the same songs that Robert had learned long ago from old Betty or his mother. Another later treasured collection of songs was called The Lark, which contained, in Carswell's words, English ballads and ditties, restoration songs, old political squibs and indecencies. There were songs by known Scottish poets, such as Alan Ramsay's Song of a Begging Soldier, and Mrs Coburn's sophisticated version of The Flowers of the Forest, and better still, some anonymous Scottish folk songs. Seeing these in print must have had a tremendous effect on the young Burns, showing him that the kind of songs he grew up hearing were worthy of publication. On that note, let's go through Burns' own song now, stanza by stanza and line by line. As I've said on previous Burns episodes, it's not worth reading these in an English accent, so I will be attempting a Scottish one. All the due apologies to any racial offence caused, and happy Burns night. Now westland winds and slaughtering guns bring autumn's pleasant weather. The mocock springs on whirring wings among the blooming heather. Now waving grain wide o'er the plain delights the weary farmer. The moon shines bright as I rove at night and muse upon my charmer. So a very simple rhyme scheme, first of all, A, B, C, B, D, E, F, E, uh, complemented by intermittent internal rhymes. So we've got the mocock springs on whirring wings, the waving grain wide o'er the plain. The lovely word westlin means uh, westerly, a wind from the west. For the teenage burns in Mount Oliphant in Ayrshire, a westerly would be blowing in off the coast. Interestingly, in his epistle to another poet, Burns uses the word again to describe his own natural Ayrshire dialect as a hamely Westlin jingle. The slaughtering guns are mentioned as part and parcel of the changing seasons, jarringly involved as if they are natural phenomena in bringing in autumn's pleasant weather. 
Now, Burns wasn't solely influenced by Scott's song, but English poetry too, of course. And in fact, Catherine Carswell describes this song as being in the politest, but not the best, English style. Nigel Leask highlights the debt this song owes to Alexander Pope's Windsor Forest, which shares slaughtering guns, a hunt, a few birds in common with Westland Wind's second stanza, and the presence of sportive tyrants. As Leask writes, Burns was opposed to shooting animals, especially out of season. A later poem was inspired by seeing a wounded hare shot in late April when hares are raising their young. To Burns, this was not only a sin against the letter of the law, but likewise a deep crime against the morality of the heart. There is something in all that multiform business of destroying for our sport individuals in the animal creation that do not injure us materially, he writes, that I could never reconcile to my ideas of native virtue and eternal right. Burns called the man who shot the hare, James Thompson, an inhuman fellow, and according to Patrick Scott Hogg, the poet confronted him by the banks of the River Nith, making him quake in his shoes as he believed Burns was going to physically throw him in the river. Moving on with the stanza, Bring autumn's pleasant weather, the moorcock springs on whirring wings among the blooming heather. Uh, Moorcock is another name for red grouse, that is the grouse of whiskey fame, springing across the blooming heather, so about as stereotypically Scottish a scene as can be imagined. Springs on whirring wings, so there's our internal rhyme. Um, It's got a kind of mechanical sound to that, springs on on whirring wings, and it's true if you've ever heard a grouse take off or or been beaten, um, they do sound a bit mechanical, they do kind of sound like they've been wound up and let off. Autumn's pleasant weather at the beginning of those those three lines. I mentioned the listed title of Now Westland Winds is Song Composed in August. And August was a weirdly intense time for Burns. Ever since childhood, according to uh, Carswell, as July passed into August, he would spend whole days on end in extreme physical and mental excitement. Uh, in the year suggested as the origin point of this song, 1775, Burns wrote in a letter that August was a month that is always a carnival in my bosom. Now, there were particular reasons for excitement this year, as we will talk about shortly. But as for what it was about August in general, it's not entirely certain. It could be that, just as the waving grain wide o'er the plain delights the weary farmer in the song, Burns, as a farmer's boy who worked the fields, knew that August meant that they were getting closer to the last harvest of the year, when the toil was nearly done. So for a bookish young poet who enjoyed spending his time reading and chasing girls, that could be um, a very exciting approach. A couple of years earlier, Burns was working his father's field and had been paired with a girl known as Nellie, who was hired to help bring in the harvest. Handsome Nellie, who incidentally had a beautiful singing voice, is subject of a famous Burns poem and was thought to be his first love, perhaps further contributing to his nostalgic fondness for August. But without the likes of handsome Nellie, Burns didn't enjoy the labouring life. As he wrote in a letter in 1788, The heart of man and the fancy of the poet are the two considerations for which I live. If my ridges and dirty dunghills are to engross the best part of the functions of my soul immortal, I had better been a rook or a magpie all at once, and then I would not have been plagued with any ideas superior to breaking off clods and picking up grubs. But in the summer of 1775, at the time of writing Westland Winds, Burns was not working on the farm. Instead, he had been sent to the village of Kirk Oswald to learn maths, a result of his father's aspirational hopes for his son. 
There, he spent his days learning things like geometry and mensuration from a teacher called Hugh Rogers. And as for his nights, they were sleepless and not in anticipation of returning to Mount Oliphant to help with the last harvest of the year. As he writes in the last two lines of this stanza, The moon shines bright as I rove at night and muse upon my charmer. According to Catherine Carswell, Mr. Rogers' classes were being held in a ground floor room in the main street of the village, which had strips of kitchen garden behind each house. More than once of late, from the school window, Robert had noticed a girl moving about domestically in the garden next door, and found it increasingly hard to concentrate upon his lesson. Burns himself described his current situation in a letter. On a smuggling coast, a charming fiette who lived next door to the school overset my trigonometry and set me off on a tangent from the sphere of my studies. I struggled with my sines and cosines for a few days more, but stepping out to the garden one charming noon to take the sun's altitude, I met with my angel, like Proserpine gathering flowers, herself a fairer flower. Here Burns quotes Milton comparing Kirk Oswald's fiat to the Garden of Eden's Eve. Her name was Margaret Thompson, Burns calls her Peggy, and she was 13 years old. But leaving Peggy until she is named later in the song, Let's look at the second stanza. The partridge loves the fruitful fells, the plover loves the mountains. The woodcock haunts the lanely dells, the soaring hern the fountains. Through lofty groves the cushat roves, the path a man to shun it. The hazel bush o'hangs the thrush, the spreading thorn the linnet. So we've got a nice collection of birds here, starting with the partridge. Sometimes this is written down, as in the Canongate Burns, as Pytrick, P-A-I-T-R-I-C-K, which is just a Scots word for partridge. So the partridge loves the fruitful fells, the plover loves the mountains. Usually when you say plover, people would think of a wading shorebird, um, not a lover of the mountains. So Burns is presumably thinking of the golden plover, which does uh, congregate on mountainsides. The woodcock horns, the lanely dells, the soaring hern, the fountains. Um, hern meaning heron. There's a famously vexed line in Shakespeare where Hamlet says, I am but mad north-northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. Uh, people have often argued about what this means. Some people say it doesn't mean anything. He, it's madness because Hamlet is mad. It's like uh, a raven in a writing desk. The point is it doesn't make any sense. But one argument I'm more convinced by is that handsaw is a corruption of hernshaw. So someone's, someone's just written it down wrong. It's actually meant to be hernshaw, which is an old word for heron. So he's saying, when the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a heron. I'm not mad. Uh, because birds fly with the wind, when the wind is facing in the direction of the sun, he is blinded. And so you can't tell one bird from another. You don't know a sparrow from an osprey or whatever. But when you're looking away from the sun, you can obviously tell the difference. So Hamlet is saying, I'm only mad about this thing in this direction when I'm looking at this situation involving my dead father and my adulterous mother. This is driving me mad. About everything else, I'm perfectly sane. Um, anyway, that's a little Shakespeare deviation there, swapping one bard for another. Through lofty groves, the cushat roves, the path of man to shun it. A cushat is a Scots word for wood pigeon, also known as a cushy or a cushy do. Um, a cushy do, I think, might be more like a dove. The hazel bush o'hangs oh, the thrush, the spreading thorn the linnet. Linnet is a finch with a beautiful song. Burns returns to linnets in a, in a later poem about a bereaved mother linnet bewailing her situation. 
the, the long view of this stanza is that here is a kind of Scottish Eden. Everything is in its rightful place. Although throughout the stanza, there is a kind of slow encroachment of discomfort coinciding with the mention of the path of man. So the fruitful fells and fountains of the first half of the stanza slowly change into the overhanging bush, and then we end with thorns. Given that Burns was quoting Milton at the time in his letters, I think maybe it's not too much of a stretch to pick up on a, on a ring of a, a kind of an Edenic fall here. Adam and Eve, like the, the two, two lovers in this poem, making their solitary way out of Eden. Moving on to the third stanza then. Thus every kind their pleasure find, the savage and the tender. Some social join and leagues combine, some solitary wander. Avaunt away the cruel sway, tyrannic man's dominion. The sportsman's joy, the murdering cry, the fluttering gory pinion. So thus every kind their pleasure find, the savage and the tender. Some social join and leagues combine, some solitary wander. Uh, this section too is reminiscent of Pope's poem, Windsor Forest where he writes, Not chaos like together crushed and bruised, but as the world harmoniously confused, where order in variety we see, and where, though all things differ, all agree. The savage and the tender, you might wonder which of those birds is meant to be savage, if he is referring to the birds he's just li listed. Um, definitely not the cushy do. If you're into your Scots folklore, you may have heard of the Kaliak, a kind of hag, who may appear, according to Edward A. Armstrong, in the form of a heron. Possibly Burns is thinking about that. Possibly the savage and the tender is meant to simply refer to predatory birds and the docile cushats. Avaunt away the cruel sway, tyrannic man's dominion, the sportsman's joy, the murdering cry, the fluttering gory pinion. Here we have the typical romantic lament, man's devastating effect on nature. I want to quickly point out man's effect on the rhyme scheme too. In the first stanza, every odd numbered line has perfect internal rhymes. So, moon shines bright, rove at night, waving grain o'er the plain, and moorcock springs whirring wings. Except the first line, westling winds slaughtering guns, which in hindsight is like the the guns are firing against not just the natural order, but the natural scheme of the song. Uh, the same thing happens in the third stanza, the sportsman's joy and murdering cry. They clang rather than rhyme. Although admittedly, a vaunt away, the cruel sway is a perfect internal rhyme. And then the happy line, some social join and leagues combine, isn't. So it doesn't track all the way through the poem, but, but I think the imbalance, the clash, is part of what's memorable about that opening line, now westland winds and slaughtering guns. And in the second stanza, every line with a bird in it has the same structure. It pairs a place with a bird. So we start with partridge and fruitful fells, and we end with spreading thorn and linnet. It's true of every line except the grammatically erratic sixth line, which happens to be the only one mentioning man, the path a man to shun it, which has this kind of halting effect on the rhythm. We end the third stanza with the gruesome, fluttering, gory pinion. Nigel Leask writes that Burns's opposition to blood sports was an aspect of the fashionable culture of sensibility, as well as an ethical stick with which to beat the sporting gentry, although he does concede that the poet seems to have held a genuine aversion to killing animals for pleasure. But on more than one occasion, this doesn't stop Burns from comparing hunting to courtship. As Sean O'Boyle has said, the twin arts of hunting and lovemaking go together in the mind of the country poet. Here, the violence and ecstasy in those lines about the sportsman's joy and the gory pinion 
appear directly before the following two stanzas, mentioning the poet walking out with his beloved. But, Peggy dear, the evening's clear, thick flies the skimming swallow. The sky is blue, the fields in view, all fading green and yellow. Come let us stray our gladsome way, and view the charms of nature. The rustling corn, the fruited thorn, an ilka happy creature. The poet removes himself and his Peggy from tyrannic man's dominion, and in the romantic tradition they are free to view the charms of nature as if in prelapsarian bliss. But Peggy dear, the evening's clear, thick flies the skimming swallow. Uh, swallows are, which is difficult to say in a Scottish accent, swallow. I don't know how quite would be the best way to do that. Swallows are summer visitors to the UK, and they fly at morning and dusk, hence why they're here now in the clear evening. Uh, and folklorically, they are meant to be weather predictors. Uh, swallows high, staying dry, goes the rhyme. So Burns may also be saying that the evening's clear and it also isn't going to rain. The sky is blue, the fields in view, all fading green and yellow. <laughs> Swallow and yellow are tricky in uh, it with the accent. I do apologise. Here we possibly see the influence of Scottish poet James Thompson, not to be confused with the other James Thompson who earlier shot a hare. Uh, this James Thompson uh, is long dead, for one thing, and shared Burns's anti-hunting sentiments. He also had a taste for double adjectives like fading green, which is where it has been suggested Burns got it. Come let us stray our gladsome way and view the charms of nature, the rustling corn, the fruited thorn, and elka happy creature. More than a hint of a double meaning, I think, to viewing the charms of nature, and the scene is appropriately fertile, rustling corn and fruited thorn. On to the last stanza then. We'll gently walk and sweetly talk while the moon shines clearly. I'll clasp thy waist and fondly pressed swear how I love thee dearly. Not vernal showers to budding flowers, not autumn to the farmer. So dear can be as thou to me, my fair, my lovely charmer. Yeah, clasp thy waist and fondly press does a bit of damage to my rhyme theory, unless Burns really is drawing a comparison between the hunters of the earlier stanzas and um, poaching his young charmer. Now, the relationship with Peggy didn't last, but according to Burns' sister, his feelings for Peggy took a long time to fade. And perhaps this is why, years after their night walks in Kirk Oswald, Peggy was one of only three people to receive a presentation copy of the Kilmarnock edition. Burns even wrote her a verse dedication that read as follows. Once fondly loved and still remembered dear, sweet early object of my youthful vows, accept this mark of friendship, warm, sincere. Friendship, tis all cold duty now allows. Peggy was by this point married, which may explain Burns rather overdoing it here in emphasising the strictly platonic nature of their friendship, but he can only hold this attitude for four lines before lapsing into melodrama. And while you read the simple artless rhymes, one friendly sigh for him, he asks no more, who distant burns in flaming torrid climes, or haply lies beneath the Atlantic roar. At the time of writing, Burns was weighing up a move to Jamaica, which explains the exotic doom he enthusiastically predicts for himself here. What Peggy didn't know was that before the publication of the Kilmarnock edition, Burns had already returned to now Westland Winds. Once his time with Peggy was over, his affections had settled on the woman who was to one day be his wife. 
Her name was Jean, and from the evidence of Burns's commonplace book, the book he wrote his compositions in, he repurposed his Kirk Oswald love lyric to fit this new object of his youthful vows, albeit in cipher, possibly because he suspected his younger sister was reading his writings. To fit the rhythm of his love songs, Jean could easily become Jeannie, and by a stroke of sheer luck, her surname was Armour, which goes splendidly well with the pre-existing Farmer-Charmer rhyme scheme. The deciphered version in his commonplace book is only eight lines long, and apart from featuring Jeannie instead of Peggy, it also contains some other variants on lines we've already heard. Now breezy winds and slaughtering guns bring autumn's pleasant weather, and the moorcock springs on whirring wings among the blooming heather. Now waving crops with yellow tops delights the weary farmer, and the moon shines bright when I rove at night to muse on Jeannie armour. Although Jean would eventually become his wife, the beginning of their relationship was disastrous. They met in around 1784, and before long Jean was pregnant. When she told her parents, her father, an upstanding stonemason, was said to faint with shock. He was of the old licht tradition, and by all accounts, loathed the sight of young Rabbi. But the identity of his charmer wasn't the only thing Burns changed with his song. He also changed his tune. As I mentioned earlier, in the Kilmarnock edition, the tune listed under the lyric title is I had a horse and I had near. I found a version of this song recorded by Catherine Campbell, which I'll play a snippet of, and over the next section of the podcast I'll be talking about and playing little sections of songs. The full versions of all the songs I play are linked below. I had a horse and I had near. I got him free, my daddy. My purse was light and my heart was sear, but my wit it was for ready. So that's I Had a Horse and I Had Nemea, the original tune listed in the Kilmarnock edition. You can just about fit now Westling Winds to it, but it does sound quite odd, especially if you've heard some of the later versions, which I'll play for you shortly. After the Kilmarnock edition, Burns actually changed the tune assigned to now Westling Winds to a song called Port Gordon. And I was thrilled to find a version of Westling Winds set to Port Gordon, recorded by James Calhoun. Now westering winds and slaughtering guns bring autumn's pleasant weather. Kirstine McHugh suggests that Burns found this second tune, Port Gordon, in a book of songs by James Oswald called The Caledonian Pocket Companion. Now, when Burns' own songs were collected and anthologised by other editors, the tune was changed yet again. In 1792, James Johnson pairs it with this song, When the King Comes O'er the Water. I may set in my wee cruise At the rock and the real toil And in 1801, after Burns' death, George Thompson, another Thompson, sanitised the song by turning slaughtering guns to sportsman's guns, and also pairs it to another tune, the Irish folk song Ali Croker. Today, the best-known version of the song is the arrangement by Dick Gochan featured on his legendary folk album, Handful of Earth. Gochan describes picking up the song from a folk singer and one-time Edinburgh postman, saying he learned it over a period of years, a verse at a time, from Geordie Hamilton, 
a man who tantalizes other singers by singing them a verse or two of a gem, then saying, ah, you don't really want to hear that, and singing something else. A song learned from Geordie is a testimony to patience, a great man and a giant of a singer. I've been listening to Gokken's version over the last week or so whilst I've been writing this podcast, and it's really beautiful. It's it's a sombre song. I think it's it's changed the sort of... If it was meant to be sprightly and cheerful before, it's it's much slower and more reflective, but really wonderful. I'll play a little snippet for you here, but um, do check out the link and listen to the whole version of this when you have chance. Now whistling winds and slaughtering guns bring Pleasant weather The milk springs On bring wings Among the blooming heather Finally, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, Now Westland Winds was featured at the royal opening of the Scottish Parliament in 2011. Now Westland Winds by Robert Barnes, sung by Karine Port with Kim Edgar and Kirsty Grace. What makes the now Westland Winds Afterlife as a song so remarkable is that Burns himself was a frustrated singer. He couldn't hold a tune and he struggled to learn musical instruments. And yet he could hear the songs he wanted to write. According to Catherine Carswell, it was very strange and maddening. He could compose an air consisting of four successive parts, which was so clear that he could and did write words to it. Yet because he could neither sing nor play it, nor write it down, unless it was first played or sung to him, it was doomed to remain forever a melody unheard. Words without music, though to music they had been composed. Carswell presents help coming to Burns in the unlikely form of Belle, the same younger sister who Burns may have suspected was reading his compositions. Bell had an excellent singing voice, and Burns had her hum tunes over and over until he could write to them. If what Carswell says is true, then it's thanks to Bell that Now Westling Winds didn't remain a melody unheard, but a melody heard to many different tunes. And that's about it for today. Thank you very much for listening. Happy Burns Night. If you haven't seen them before, do check out the earlier episodes on Tamashanta and Addressed to the Deal, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>